This is the last Sunday after Epiphany, and next Sunday we uh, begin, well, on Wednesday we begin Lent with Ash Wednesday, the solemn season of Lent, and as I have mentioned before, a solemn season merely means that uh, the clergy and the staff at St. Luke's Church wear long faces for six weeks. So I'm going to preach on all three readings because they give us some idea of, the, of transfiguration, transformation, what it might mean, uh, the, how it sets us up for uh, the season of Lent, why these readings are in our lectionary where they are. And then from Second Peter, we have some things said about uh, biblical inspiration and interpretation that are important and some interesting historical facts that are revealed uh, in Second Peter, so I want to preach about that. And of course, finally, the gospel from Matthew, Matthew's version of the transfiguration story, where Jesus is transfigured before James, Peter, and John on the mountain. In Exodus, we have a story about Moses going up the mountain. And in the Hebrew reckoning, he goes up on a mountain that is covered with clouds and there's fire that's coming around the mountain. Fire is another word in the Torah for God. So there's more than one word used for God in the Hebrew Bible. And I suspect, I didn't look it up, but I suspect that the word that's used today for, for who's up there on the mountain where Moses went up into the cloud is Elohim, which is the God who is in the cloud and in the mists. And we read about Moses being with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And next week, we will read in the first, on the first Sunday in Lent, Jesus going into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. So connections are being made for the thought world out of which this literature emerged. And you need to know that when you hear 40 days and 40 nights, what it really means is a long time, right? Not necessarily 40 days, you know, counting them chronologically, but it means a long time. It's a significant number uh, in the Hebrew thought world. So Moses goes up there, and he's with God, and he's going to come down the mountain, and his face will be transformed. It's an epiphany. So the last Sunday after Epiphany uh, uh, begins with the first reading is an epiphany, and the gospel reading is an epiphany, a manifestation of the presence of God. Moses will bring with him the covenant, and the covenant is there for the purpose of establishing a relationship between God and humanity. And Moses, at that point in the history of salvation, becomes the mediator between God and humanity. And so it introduces to us the concept of reconciliation, restoration, which we will see as we move through the season of Lent and come now to the great Easter event where God has reconciled the world in a dramatic fashion. 
In the Book of Common Prayer on page 855, in the Catechism, the question is, what is the mission of the church? Answer. The mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. A lot of people think the mission of the church is the end of Matthew's gospel. Go therefore into the world baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and know that I am with you always even unto the end of the ages. Does that mean we shouldn't do that? No, but the mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. So you and I now become, in this day and age, the instruments of God's reconciling work. We are ambassadors for Christ since God is making his appeal through us. There is no other way to do this. So Moses is now going to begin this process in the great sweep of the history of salvation. And we'll hear more about that moving forward. Most biblical scholars believe that 2 Peter is the uh, oldest book in... I don't know how to explain this properly because it's late. But the fact is that it's the last one written that God incorporated into the canon. So it dates sometime in the early part of the 2nd century, probably about 110, 115. And therefore, we could get into a lot of issues about Petrine authorship. But what's said today here is really doesn't bear on that, although I will tell you a story. In 1994, I took a class uh, at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley that was taught by James Vanderkam. Dr. James Vanderkam teaches at Notre Dame. He's not a Roman Catholic. He comes from the Reformed tradition. But he is one of the world experts on the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he has written a wonderful little book that is accessible to the popular reader called The Dead Sea Scrolls, an introduction to the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's recently been revised within the last 10 years or so. So in the course of the class, which was a week long, he told us about how they discovered the various manuscripts in the caves at Qumran. He taught us how to read the labeling and what they're numbered and what that means where they came from and what what do the numbers mean and all of this stuff. And then he said, you know, in one of the caves, uh, there were different kinds of things found. Rolled up scrolls, stuff on copper, fragments of papyrus, uh, fragments of of, uh, papyri in Greek, not just Hebrew. And in one of the caves, a fragment about this big was discovered, I think it was cave 11, and a piperologist by the name of Monsignor Jose O'Callaghan. <laughs> Talk about multicultural, right? So, Irish father, Spanish mother. He grew up in Spain. He claimed that this fragment, as it's called, 
was from Second Peter. If it is from Second Peter, it now has consigned about seven tons of New Testament scholarship to the flames. So most of the textual critics and people in biblical studies in the United States said, this is bogus, it isn't Second Peter, uh, we don't want to go on and on about it. We've published now a couple of learned papers and we put it over here. So Vanderkam said, it is sort of dead in the United States, but in Europe, they haven't left it alone. So at the University of Salamanca in Spain, they did a computer search. And the question that was asked, so many words, was there are about four uh, characters and also words on this fragment. And the question that was asked is, in all of the extant Greek literature that we know exists, that is now on the computer, what is the mathematical probability that a fragment with the juxtaposition of these Greek words or letters would be from anything else other than Second Peter? And the answer came back about 1 in 4,332,000. So uh, Dr. Vanderkam said, stay tuned. I'm staying tuned. But here's why these things are important. Even if we accept the late date of 2 Peter, which appears is when it was written, some of what is in 2 Peter is perhaps an older tradition than what we read in the Gospels about the transfiguration, the story. And what is being reported in that epistle comes from that earlier strand of tradition. Richard Baucom, who wrote a, a very interesting book about, ten year, about eight years ago now called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he spent some time with Second Peter and he said, in its striking combination of Hellenistic religious language and apocalyptic eschatology, Second Peter provides a model for the church's perennial task of retaining the gospel's essential content while giving it meaningful expression in new cultural contexts. And so what uh, is being said in this epistle is something I think we in this every age need to be reminded of. First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by human will, but men and women moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. We live in an age, and there have been other ages like this too, where lots of people just think, well, that's your opinion. All opinions are equal. We don't need to get into a big long thing over this. This is just as true as this, right? So that's one of the ways that postmodernity speaks about this. This week I've also been reading once again in C.S. Lewis. And C.S. Lewis has a phrase that I'm going to be using a lot to your distraction in all probability, and he calls it chronological snobbery. You know? Whenever I look at a book, I open the book to the title page, 
where it tells you when it was published. So I want to see how recent it is, meaning uh, closer to what it really is as opposed to something 20 years old. The other way, if I'm reading fiction and I'm reading a series, I want to read the first one or find the first one and then read them in course if I like the books. So that's one way uh, to do that. But Lewis says, you know, when you read a new book, you should then read an old book and find out something about how the processes are at work in the way in which we understand this now. Because you and I cannot know the future. We can know the present and we can know the past. And we need to be engaged in a continuous conversation internally and together about how much is past prologue or no. And is everything that we hear now more true or more authentic than something in the past? Well, sometimes yes and sometimes no. One of the things we do know about the idea of past as prologue is that the same cause has paradoxical effects. A child raised in a scrupulously neat family will either become a neatnik or a slob or something in between. It is not predictive of future behavior, but we act as if it is. So the same is true about our searching for the truth. None of us can know the truth. But all of us should look for the truth. And in this reading from Second Peter, there's something about the whole idea of what it means to speak of the search for truth. In the Matthew's Gospel, the story of the Transfiguration, uh, the Transfiguration story is one of the great stories to me in the Gospels, what it means. Here's some inside baseball. Uh, most of the people that taught me in seminary say that the Transfiguration story is a misplaced resurrection appearance, and it was editorially placed in the Gospel at that point in order to give a foretaste to those who followed Jesus what the ultimate result was going to be. So they gave it away then. My own view is that a good case can be made for the fact that the transfiguration experience occurred where it's placed in the Gospels. And it's there to permit the followers of Jesus to see him in depth. And what I mean by that is that if you have lived your life in a way that either in your relational life or what you've learned about whatever it is you've learned about, and they were all kind of disparate learnings, there comes a time when an event happens and all that stuff gets put together. You see it in depth. Ah, you know what it means. This is not just true about intellectual activities. It's true about our whole emotional, spiritual, and mental life. And you've heard me say this to you many times before. Some of the most recent work on the brain tells us that we have a liquid nervous system. And what that means is that thinking and feeling are simultaneous. 
So I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up in San Francisco, you know, the Haight-Ashbury district, all of that sort of stuff. Grateful Dead and Golden Gate Park. We're doing all this sort of business, the Avalon Ballroom. And the whole focus was the necessity for us to get in touch with our feelings. So long stories, my confreres, my, we all talk about how we were taught to suppress our feelings. And that it was important now that we express our feelings. And talking and acting as if thinking and feeling were two different things when they're the same thing. And they happen, you know, I get driven nuts by people who say, well, I feel like that. No, you don't. You think it. That's what it is. You give a vo you're giving a voice to this, using ratiocination in order to arrive at the description of what it is that you're feeling. So when we think about these events, they provide us an opportunity in the biblical witness to understand something about putting two and two together. Seeing something in depth. After looking at it over and over again. Remember Cynthia Bourgeau, I said in my uh, sermon last week, who said, the wisdom traditions have to do not necessarily with learning anything more, but they have to do with seeing more than you did before out of the same stuff. So Father Thomas Keating says, what happened on the mountain with Jesus was the divine source of his human personality poured out through every pore of his body in the form of light. And so what the apostles saw was in Jesus the uncreated light. That's what the Eastern Orthodox Church would call it and other uh, spiritual traditions would refer to it as. So all of you have seen this. You may not recall it absolutely, but if you read more in depth about it, you'll see what, what I mean. I'll tell you one instance where I saw this. In the mid-1970s, I was at Grace Cathedral for something called uh, the, the uh, Trinity Institute. And that year, one of the uh, speakers was the founder of the Taizé community in France, Brother Roger Schultz. And a friend of mine who was working for Trinity Church Wall Street uh, asked me at a break if I would like to go and meet Brother Roger. And I said, yes. So he, he was waiting in an anteroom to come out and give his next talk. And I came in to meet him, and I saw in his face the uncreated light. It shone. And the light came, not this way, it came this way. You could see it. It was there. And, you know, in big and small ways, we see that in each other all the time. When things are going pretty well for us, somebody, one of your friends, might look at you and say, gee, you look different. And by virtue of that, you have some idea of what this is. And this is what's being described uh, in the story of the transfiguration. Let me say a word to you about mountaintop experiences because uh, that's something that uh, a lot of people continue to search and search for. Let me just say this. 
The great writers on the spiritual life in the history of Christianity, the great spiritual tradition which has been neglected by Christians, particularly in the West, for a long, long time, which is is one of the reasons why so many of the insights of, of the East have had such resonance, because we have put to the side the deep spiritual tradition that we see. Some of this is very ordinary and commonplace. Saint Athanasius of Alexandria wrote a biography of Saint Anthony the recluse in the desert. And he wrote the story of when Saint Anthony was going to come out of his cave after 25 years. And all these people are standing outside the cave waiting for Anthony to come out. And he came out. And Athanasius reports, well, Anthony comes out of the cave. He doesn't look particularly like he was happy to see us. He doesn't particularly look like he's upset that we're there. He doesn't look wasted by any austerities. He looks like a man at home with himself. Would you like somebody to say that about you? Somebody at home with themselves, which may be an important goal of the spiritual life. So the great fathers of the church have said, don't go searching for these experiences. They will come to you in one form or another. Most of us, when we have one of these experiences, would love them to go on forever. And Peter, who always to me in the New Testament is every man, says to Jesus, it is good that we're here. Let me make three dwelling places, one for you, one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Let's freeze the experience. Let it go on forever. And then the voice from God, this is my son, the beloved, listen to him. It scared the daylights out of them. They were prostrate as the result of this. That's what these experiences can also do. They can terrify you. And in Matthew's gospel, unlike Mark or Luke, Jesus comes over to the apostles and he touches them and says, do not be afraid. Get up, do not be afraid. And that's a word to the church and not only to the apostles, that you and I have nothing to fear from spiritual insight. You and I have nothing to fear from allowing ourselves to um, not seek mountaintop experiences as the only authentic way of understanding the presence and power of God in your life. So as you enter the season of Lent, think about the fact that God needs you to fulfill his plan for the cosmos and that the transfiguring power... You know, uh, transfiguration in Greek is metamorphosis. Have you heard that word before? That's what it means. It means transformation. God is present with each one of us as we move through the season where we seek uh, an enhanced understanding of the nature of transformation. Amen.